Hello everyone. Thank you for tuning in today. My name is Norez Rana and I'm an economist for the World Bank. I'll be hosting today's program on new wave where we'll be discussing um the economic trajectory of Pakistan especially in light of the political instability that has shaped over the last few days and so then we will be talking about some of the structural issues and deficiencies and uh, what is the way to recovery um uh, is there a possibility is there a, is there a short term solution or you know we just have to wish and go through the deceivers as the economy revives and you know the question whether it revives also depends on if it will revive uh because you know there's a lot lots of issues which are not just economic in nature they are social they are development oriented they are political and we need to kind of unpack all of them and chart out a plan which focuses on each one of them individually and cumulatively as well so to discuss this topic i have two very special guests um uh, two economists who are who also happen to be professors of economy uh i'll first introduce professor danish khan He is an assistant professor at Franklin and Marshall College. Uh, he has previously worked uh, at the Asian Development Bank and with the Planning Commission of Pakistan as well. So, welcome, Danish. It's great to have you today. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. Uh, second, our second very special guest is uh, Dr. Sharam Azhar. He is assistant professor of economy and he teaches at the Bucknell University. Previously, he has taught in Pakistan at Habib University as well. and you know both danish and shahram um, i'm very glad to have you and i'm sure you know there's a depth of knowledge uh, there's a you know an entire gold mine of uh, you know economic opinions that you may have based on evidence based on data based on your experience and i'm sure you know we can have some key takeaways after you know during the course and at the end of the discussion so uh, without further ado uh, you know uh, i'll begin the discussion um when we had planned uh, we had scheduled this discussion amongst ourselves as you both know it was a while ago and uh, you know the political scenario in pakistan was quite different than it was than what it is and you know especially how it has shaped in the last 10 days uh there's complete chaos it's borderline anarchy Uh, things erupted since Imran Khan got arrested, and I think we'll be doing an injustice if we ignore all of that and only focus on the economic issues because you know these things do not happen in isolation; they, they never happen in silos. Um, and uh, what we are witnessing in Pakistan, you know, there's some people label that it's a very serious and a severe threat to social cohesion, and things can go downhill as they have been spiraling over the last ten days. But what we see is. I personally feel I don't think it's just political in nature. The outburst, the anger—it's a culmination of various feelings and emotions that people have been going through, witnessing over the last one year or so. And I think a lot of that has got to do with the economic uh, oppression, the economic suffering that people have been subjected to. And I have a few numbers in front of me, which I may—if you look at food inflation, food inflation is a huge indicator. So last year in April 2022 food inflation was 17.26%. This year based on the state bank's figures food inflation stands at 48.07%. So that is unprecedented. The value of currency it has depreciated 46% since last year. So last year in May 2022 uh compared to now the, the economy has completely dissipated and you know the effects are there are multiple effects. Our inflation is linked to the value of a currency because we are an import oriented economy we don't even have enough to finance our raw materials 
and you know the impacts are being directly felt by the common man and they are uh, exponentially more greatly felt by low income households who are already bordering poverty so what do you think where are we headed you know the the political situation boiling up the economy is already in a downward spiral so you know first danish let's hear it from you where do you think where are we headed uh, i think it's it's a difficult question to uh, to just explain it in like few minutes so because there's so many uh, underlying factors right so um i'll i'll try i'll try so i mean food insecurity unemployment uh, chronic underemployment um they have been there for like past 5 years i mean even prior to that so 20 if you know remember 2012 uh, was also a very <clears throat> bottom in many ways there was uh economy uh was halted due to massive um power outages um there was a lots of violent terrorist attacks um economy was overall the, the sentiment for uh investments or business or consumer confidence was low right and then all of the sudden like in couple of years it did pick up and there was some sort of a positive trajectory from 2013 onwards right and then it halted again in 2017 with the ouster of um uh, navashri right through a uh, supreme court so and then from there on so so that's why i wanted to again it's not a long arc but it's at least we should take a slightly longer view of these events right and since 2018 there has been an economic slowdown uh, in 2017 um, growth rate was around 6% then it went down to uh, less than 1% but uh the key issue has been right whenever there are uh, periods of economic growth in pakistan they are followed by economic downturns right and maybe we can talk about this in next section why you you briefly mentioned because of the reliance on exports right so our consumption is heavily uh dependent on imports so but coming back to your point about uh current scenario so political instability has been the key constant in pakistan throughout right uh, except uh, periods of military dictatorship where through some sort of coercive coercive measure that stability has been created and again that political settlement also gets challenged based on um, multiple factors global but also domestic factors which leads to uh political uh parties getting together and getting rid of the military dictators now this time it's a unique factor because uh it's the uh there's a coalition government right of 13 parties which in some ways can lead to stability because it represents broader consensus in the society but one major political actor is out right and that political actor pti um is willing to do anything to get back into power right and again that has and we cannot just uh, argue that this is only with pti other political actors have been doing that in past and therefore we see this massive outburst but uh, we don't actually we don't have data from the ground to really say whether it's the uh, which socio economic groups are participating in these uh, 
rallies it, it seems like it's more of the affluent middle income segments at least from urban centers right but again it, it will be based on antidotes we don't have concrete data but i would argue maybe that sounds uh, counterintuitive that because of so much food inflation unemployment and uh, other economic crises uh, average or ordinary citizens are kind of alienated in this process right they are they they probably want change right and that change at times is in the form of pti but at the other times it's the pdm if you remember before the ouster of imran the pdm had this economic package that inflation is the issue unemployment is the issue so, so ordinary citizens did give them chance but uh i think this uh current crisis if we cannot explain it primarily through economic lens that people are in the streets because of the uh, economic stress that they are facing. Uh, I mean, that stress is there, but I'm not saying that that the political expression captures that. It seems more like a more ideological expression of core PTI base. That's why we didn't see didn't see millions in the streets, right? I mean, I don't know. If no, I no, no, yeah. But yeah. yeah. Okay. No, no, obviously that's a very fair point. Uh, and I mean, like you said, we don't have the data, we don't have the evidence to claim anything, but it could be one of the many reasons. But what we do have is some figures where we, we, where we can compare, uh, you know, the accounts, the, the value of currency before and after, the value of external debt before and after, but not to say that things were well, even while Imran Khan was in power. And I need to give that disclaimer that things have been for a while, they've, they've been on a downwards trajectory. If you compare the 22 number, 2022 numbers, uh, March 2022, let's say, for instance, the month before Imran was ousted with the numbers of March 2021, then we'll see a significant increase in inflation even then. And Pakistan was, I mean, you know, he, he gave the, the oil subsidy was accorded by Imran Khan, which actually accelerated the pace at which the foreign reserves began depleting. So that was one of the triggers to the entire economic conundrum that we are facing. So it has been in the creation, in the construction for a while and not to absolve any one party from the other, but just linking the social crisis with the economic crisis. And we've seen that, we've seen that in other parts of the world, Sri Lanka very recently, they, you know, there was a default scenario and, and then people just revolted against the, the status quo that existed over there. You know, at some point, and what is more threatening and scary to say so is the fact that if a country like Pakistan defaults, when people, you know, at the moment they're struggling, but once it's beyond the point of struggle where they actually do not have enough to put food on the table for their next meal for their kids, then you see a social uprising. And it's, it not, may not be targeted towards one particular party or the other, it's just uh, an ex expression of uh, you know utter injustice that the people have been subjected to and i guess pti just because it's not in power at the moment it's in the opposition it it has the the ability to kind of capture that narrative and rally the entire population but now coming back to sharam actually what i wanted to discuss you know ask you that where do you see these economic deceivers end like what is the rock bottom you know the inflation is already at 48% the currency has lost 46% of its value. Where, where do we end? Do we end at where Lebanon is? Do we end at where Sri Lanka is? Is default imminent? If default happens, what does that even mean? Because a lot of people, 
they tend to speak about default, but they don't really understand the implications. So, you know, here I would really want you to come in and elaborate. Right. No, before I, I, I totally agree with what Danish said and what you also uh, argued in your uh, earlier remarks. I just want to uh, kind of uh, set the stage for, you know, how I'm looking at this particular issue, right? Kind of set the context. Um, you see, no country in the world has or can indefinitely survive on other people's savings, right? That's the bottom line, right? No country in the world. We've known this fact pretty much since the time of Adam Smith and David Ricardo, right? Uh, countries that succeed, uh, the wealth of nations, as Adam Smith told us in 1776, depends on what you produce, right? And what you can sell to the rest of the world. So, I mean, you can ask this question about any kind of country in the world, right? Let's ask the following question. What does, for example, Pakistan contribute to the world capitalist system, right? So, for example, um, Taiwan contributes uh, the manufacturing of semiconductors, that part of the value chain. Vietnam is capturing the market share of even Chinese companies now in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic. Right? India, as we know, Tim Cook uh, and Apple recently visited India. And I mean, it's, it's kind of ironic that, uh, you know, the number one company CEO in the world is getting selfies taken with the, you know, naked sadhus. But that's the logic of global capital, right? You have to provide something to the world system so that some part of the global value that's being produced in the world is captured in your territory as well, AKA the GDP, right? So we have to produce something and we have to produce something that is of utility to the rest of the world. Bottom line, that's the bottom line, right? If you do not produce anything of value for anyone else, no one is going to buy your goods and services. It follows that, you know, in this world of uh, where, you know, uh, value is crossing boundaries, um, it follows that all of these outcomes that we're describing, for example, exchange rate depreciation, currency depreciation, right? Why is Vietnam's currency not depreciating right now, right? Why is India's currency within this narrower band, uh, you know, there, there has been depreciation uh, in USD terms related to the increase in interest rates in the US, et cetera. It's a global phenomenon. But why is Pakistan's situation much worse even than its regional uh, you know, competitors or uh, similar economies? Yeah. That's the key question to ask, right? So the, for the first question I want to point out is, what do we produce of value to the world system? Now, this economic question, once you start asking it, um, you can ask the next question, which is, what do we produce? What does Pakistan's investment structure look like, right? So it follows, anyone who's looked at the numbers can tell you that the number one asset that draws the attention of investors in Pakistan was, is at least for the last three decades, the real estate sector, right? Now you're an economist, right? And we have this nerdy and fancy language to explain this. We call it, we distinguish between tradables and non-tradables. That's just a fancy way of saying what can be sold to the rest of the world and what has to be consumed internally within the market. And the traditional example we learned in textbooks is that of the haircut, right? That even if, um, you know, there's a free haircut in Indonesia somewhere, I won't go right now to get that haircut. It's a non-tradable commodity, right? So now let's, let's ask this question. What are the sectors that have grown in profitability in Pakistan? 
where are the capital gains, right? Because in the capitalist economy, yeah. investors and investments will follow expected rates of returns, right? And expected rates of returns are not just created in abstraction from policy, rents are generated through state policy and activity, right? So for example, it is not a coincidence that Vietnam suddenly produces Nike's shoes, right? Or it's not a coincidence that a coincidence that Modi is meeting Tim Cook and guaranteeing certain things, right? So it follows that Pakistan's main issue has been its inability to produce anything of value for the rest of the world. That in turn is connected to our political issue, namely, namely that our ruling bloc, our ruling elite, specifically the military establishment, has been interested in promoting the interests of one particular sector. And that sector, as we know, does not export anything to the rest of the world while it imports stuff from the rest of the world, right? So real estate and construction will add to the, you know, all the problems, the complex problems that we have uh, in, in numerous ways. In another way, for example, you, you mentioned the issue of food production, right? Uh, and food inflation. Yeah, why is it the case that a agrarian economy, I mean, I, I grew up believing that Pakistan is a agrarian country, right? Everything we do is for our farmers and all the rest of it, that great ideology we learned growing up, right? So the question is, well, land is a scarce asset and land use, Danish and I wrote about this recently, land use, like any asset, can be used for multiple, you know, uh, different uh, uses, right? It can be used to build shadi halls for people, right? It can be used to, uh, you know, build uh, sports complexes for kids. It can be used for a host of reasons. It can be used to, to make food above all else, right? So the question of food scarcity in Pakistan is also tied with the interests of the real estate sector. It has to do with land use policies that go back to the year 2001 when Pervez Musharraf, the, you know, um, the former dictator enacted a series of uh, land use uh, related reforms. Okay, so then what I'm trying to argue then is that all of these questions are interrelated. The effects might be disparate, but the causes are identical and it all ultimately boils down to the issue of the institutional structure, right? We know from Darren Achimoglu, for example, that the question of economic success and economic development ultimately boils, boils down to the structure of your institutions and the quality of your institutions, specifically two kinds of institutions, economic institutions, those that pertain to the distribution of resources in a society and political institutions, those that pertain to the distribution of power. Now within that particular, the latter kind of institutions, that's where the disjuncture is in the Pakistani state. And my biggest fear right now, if I'm perfectly honest, is that for the first time, I feel that the ruling bloc, the historical ruling bloc, as Gramsci called it, for the first time, the military and the military constituency in particular, for me, it's not about individuals, it's about constituencies. There is a pro-establishment constituency in Pakistan, period. Some of them reside in cantonment, some of them reside elsewhere, they're a part of our, you know, social milieu, right? But the point is, the most frightening bit is that for the first time, that constituency has a civilian political leader that is independent of the army top brass, right? 
And that is extremely threatening because what that implies then is that the, you know, uh, this, this Leviathan kind of uh, thing that previously existed and we had this, you know, Pakistan has had economic problems since, since day one, right? And every few years, Pakistan basically becomes ungovernable and the military top brass intervenes and establishes, you know, some kind of normalcy, right? That's been the kind of the cyclical pattern. This time around, however, my fear is that things are very different for two, two major reasons, right, if I may. Yeah. Why would you, sorry, why would you categorize this as a fear? Wouldn't it, is it something that a welcome sign that we're kind of, you know, there's a disruption of the status quo, no matter, you know, the process may not be as, uh, you know, rosy as we would, one would expect it to be, but like realistically, whenever there's a disruption, yeah. It's, it's been disruptions that have been terrible for human history, right? Um, Germany experienced uh, uh, a disruption, a uh, change in the status quo in the, in, in the 19, you know, uh, the 1920s and 30s. We know how that ended. Uh, Iran experienced, um, uh, you know, something in 1979, uh, depending on, you know, how you look at it, uh, the, the status of uh, political freedoms doesn't look too, too great to me, to be honest, right? Um, so it's it's a question of what kind of transformation is taking place. It's not just about, you know, the Taliban could have uh, overthrown the Pakistan army. Uh, you know, the, the issue is not one of, uh, it's, it's, it's never been an issue of, uh, you know, um, it's, see, the, the army was and never will be a monolithic entity. This was just a simplistic kind of a notion that some people had, right? We have these simpleton kind of uh, an analyses in Pakistan. It's, it's, it's not like it's 500,000 500, people. What, what, what do you mean, right? Hmm. Uh, it's not one person making all the decisions. We have those characterizations, nor is Imran Khan, by the way. What I was saying was it's a fair for me because, it, because of the following reason, right? Number one, it seems very, very unlikely, at least at the face of it, that Pakistan's deal with the IMF A is going to go through especially with the recent, you know, bumping up of course. six to eight billion. That's the first fair. Fair number two is that, I mean, we're not talking about this enough, at least in the Pakistani media, 80% of Pakistan's interest payments in the last three years have not been to the Paris club countries. They've been to one particular country, namely the People's Republic of China. 80% of the interest payments, right? Now this is significant. Because if you think about it from the lender's perspective, right, I know that we like to, you know, we have these rhetorical kind of ways of thinking about the IMF in Pakistan. But if you look at it from the lender's perspective for a, for a moment, right? There's lender A and there's lender B, IMF in China. If I make all, if I, if you're, if, if, if I have two lenders and if I uh, accept receipts from lender one and make payments to lender B, Obviously, that's going to be a structural issue for uh, lender A, for obvious reasons, right? Number one. Number two, the fact that Pakistan's army chief a couple of weeks ago went to China, right, and offered greater military alliance. In particular, you know, there's discussion about a naval base in Gwadar, you know, a Chinese naval base. So all kinds of military and strategic compromises uh, have been and will be offered in return for uh, the security of, uh, you know, political rents in Pakistan. I don't think the Chinese leadership wants Imran Khan back in power. So that's my biggest fear that on the one hand, the military's constituency is no longer 
within the control of the military top brass, right? And on the other hand, the international kind of coalition of interests because of Pakistan's economic situation, right? You see, political sovereignty is a casualty of economic uh, volatility, right? When, you, when, when, when you're running out of funds, default should not be an option. For Absolutely. Yeah. Should not be, it should, it should be a parameter. It should, it, should, it should be what we call in economics a binding constraint, right? It's not something that we can you know, play around with. It's not a possibility. Um, so yeah, so I think that uh, the political chaos is only going to worsen given the confluence of the economic and political factors at this precise moment. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, please, Anush. Yeah. So then, building on this, like the the, I mean, land economies is a great point that Shahram mentioned, and and he referred to that institutional structure, right? So I would. Uh, I would say that that particular institutional structure has led to the economic crisis because it leads to redistribution of resources from bottom to top. Like in, in the case of, for example, land economy, small peasants or landless peasants have been displaced, right? And that land has been uh, used for real estate speculation, right? So in this process, I mean, you know, in, in any development process, or I would, I would say in capitalist development process, there will be some winners and losers, right? So those losers are obviously the ordinary Pakistanis, in particular, the small peasants and landless workers. But the winners, as the, the argument is as long as winners are more than losers or overall gains for the economy are more, uh, it, it's we can tolerate that, right? That's the kind of uh, development discourse. In the case of Pakistan, those winners, as Sharam mentioned, are tied to again that elites, right? In particular, the real estate developers and um, folks inside civil military bureaucracies, and and for the and the hegemony of that socio institutional structure can be. Uh, measured by the fact that now in Pakistani media, after a while, now you can talk about generals and judges, right? You can name them chief justice, army chief. But at least what I notice in the mainstream media, name of the real estate developer, Malik Riaz, is muted, while the name of army chief and chief justice is not muted these days, right? So this illustrates that that, that socio-institutional structure because I would argue, because the economic interests of elites are more tied to Malik Riaz, because he provides those rents through his develop, those his development or what we call gated housing enclaves, right? So his reputation should be preserved. So this is this kind of uh, reflects that broader institutional mechanism, which creates problem. And again, today, if you notice, at, at least what I heard, there's speculation that. Malik Riaz is again the, the guy to negotiate between Imran Khan and Army Chief and the and the PDM. So one one would wonder what's what's about him, right? So we would say, well, because he's the rich guy, he's influential, he's trustworthy. But I wanted to give this anecdote or this example to illustrate that what we are saying that socio-institutional mechanism is built around land economy. It manifests in this example, right? That's because whole elite network is tied to that land economy. And this is, it leads to inefficient outcomes in a way that it doesn't, 
expand productive capacity of the economy. It does not create decent employment opportunities. And most importantly, the current crisis in, of current account deficit or the external payments crisis, it contributes towards it rather than addressing that crisis. As Sharam mentioned, the marginal propensity to import is, is high when you expand that real estate development in Pakistan. Well, Vanish, you know what? I think you've just made some, you've added extra work for a video editor because we'll have to mute that part. <laughs> um, but uh, no, jokes apart, I think uh, I wanted to come to this to the later half of this program, but uh, you know, I kind of give that disclaimer too, that even the disruptions that we see that are happening in Pakistan at the moment, I don't think they are going to lead to any uh, changes in status quo because you rightly you pointed out that despite who, regardless whoever, whosoever is in power, whether that's PDM, whether that's PDI, whether that's the military dictatorship, they're all governed by one set of power brokers and you know the land mafias which dictate the the economic environment of Pakistan as well so you know if we're talking about from an economic lens if we're viewing it you know we we understand that trade deficit for example is a huge issue and again I don't want to repeat what Sharam said trade deficit exists because of the fact that we have not been producing value-added goods that can be exported elsewhere you know when the world opened up when the volume of global trade increased exponentially we did not capitalize on those opportunities. Rather, we became an import-oriented consumption economy. And the reason being because all of our incentives, I guess it, it, it has got all to do with systemic incentives. For example, taxation. You know, if you, if you invest into real estate, if you invest into property design, you're paying 0%. If you want to set up a business entity or corporation, you are paying 29% in taxes. So I guess systematically, there's been a lot of injustice which has... Uh, you know, nudged the, the 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 operators of you know the working classes, the professionals, or the entrepreneurs in a manner that you know there's there's this nation building completely circumvented that that notion of investing in businesses, investing in products and goods which can serve to you know rectify the balance of payment crisis, for example, that we tend to face. And like rightly mentioned, you can build a house, but you cannot export it. You can't send you know sell it elsewhere. Uh, so. Now, I, you know, I don't think this is uh, unraveling anytime soon. So, you know, whether there's a revolution, but it's not a revolution. Even Imran Khan, before he was ousted, he was setting up Ruda, that, the, the, the some development uh, society on Ravi. So, you know, we, these are the same patterns that we see. The people at the top can change, but, you know, nothing else. Their operations aren't really changing. So, I don't, yeah, yeah. I, I don't see that unraveling. I don't see the you know, the trade deficit going anywhere. On top of that, the two other issues that I wanted to highlight from an, just, just strictly, you know, limiting ourselves to an economic discussion, the fiscal deficit. Fiscal deficit exists because A, we haven't been able to generate enough revenue from taxation. Our expensive expenses that we, you know, the, the government tends to incur have been much greater than the income. That leads to, you know, there are actually market filling subsidies real estate is one, uh, you know, then there's sugar subsidies, they, they, you know, so on and so forth, they, they, they're across the board, which, and then, you know, that uh, the, the circular debt, all of that has accumulated fiscal debt, fiscal debt is feeds into is linked with external debt. Now we have unsurmountable debt, our dynamics, our production dynamics are not changing. 
So, I mean, then, then I don't, then what happens? Like the basic question, I actually met someone uh, two days ago. He said, okay, we know what's happening, but what, what happens then? You know, what happens? Like that was a very simple question and I actually did not have the answer to it. You know, where does it end? Will people die of hunger? Will they be out in the streets? Like, what is the end? That is my, you know, again, the big question in inverted commas. It's not looking good. It's not looking yeah. good. That's for sure. And you see, this issue of rock bottom uh, a few years ago when this whole uh, drama began to unfold, you know, it, it, as Danish pointed out in, you know, in his historical sketch, the problem really began to worsen, systematically worsen in 2017-18, right? When, uh, you know, sections of uh, the Pakistan army led by former army chief, you know, all these uh, generals from the army, from the ISI, the judiciary, all of these, the top brass was basically supporting one man, right? Uh, and that's where the problem really began. They were hell-bent on, I mean, Pakistan's, look at growth, the growth rate, right? Um, 2013 to 2018. It was on a upward kind of a swing, right? And suddenly the trajectory began to reverse the Panama case and, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, banning the, barring the sitting PM at the, uh, at the time from, you know, participating in politics, right? All the rest of it, that has taken a hit that has take has has had a debilitating impact on Pakistan's growth rate, and and I, mean, I, I hate to sound like a neo neoliberal kind of an economist, but the fact of the the brute fact in in the Pakistani case at least, right, is that, I mean I'm a big proponent of the fact that distribution is the primary concern of uh, political economy and economics, but in Pakistan's case I think that it's growth, um, we have to focus on growth. Right. All of these issues that you're talking about, for example, fiscal deficit, we can't tax people. Right. I mean, we know this, right. As economists, taxes are a function of a ratio, a fraction of total income. Right. Yeah. If you produce peanuts, right, I can tax 70 percent of, of that income, but it's still, you know, going to be peanuts. Right. A fraction of peanuts is going to be fewer peanuts. Right. So we need growth and growth regardless of whether, whether you speak to a left-leaning economist or a right-leaning economist, growth depends on investments. There is no other way about, around it. These can be public investments or private investments. These can be international investments. These can be investments for particular sectors. They, they, these can be targeted investments, but make investments. Let's create an investment-friendly environment. If we can't, if we want to do it, I mean, people keep debating about, you know, what's the right path for Pakistan? Should it be capitalism? Should it be socialism? I mean, neither of those has worked in the Pakistani context, right? I mean, the, the key question should be, how do we create the appropriate mix of public and private investments? In the Pakistani case, ideally, these should be labor intensive in the sense that they absorb significant proportions of our unemployed youth, right? For obvious reasons. And they should be export-led, right? These three facets should be, you know, part of any successful strategy. And by the way, we don't have to kind of reinvent the wheel. We just need to observe in our own region, for example, look at, look at Vietnam, right? I mean, it sounds... Uh, almost revolutionary to say this, that, you know, in 2020, I'll give you one statistic. 
between 2018 to 2023, I mean last quarter, China's share of US imports has gone down by roughly 4%, okay? 4%. China has lost 4% of its share of US imports. The question is which countries have gained, right? Half of this has been gained by one country alone, namely Vietnam. The remaining half has been gained by five countries combined, Thailand, Mexico, India, and a few others. Hmm? Now the question is, what did Vietnam do? What is so special about this country that was you know, built on uh, the foundations of war and imperialism uh, in the 1970s and is barely five decades old? What did they do? Well, the first thing they did was they invested heavily in their people's education and health. 97%, why is, why are global companies suddenly interested in Vietnam? Is it because they love those people? You know, it's, it's not that, it's never that. It's about unit labor costs and productivity, right? Ask any trade economist, ask any business person, right? Why did, you, why did Nike decide to produce its shoes in Vietnam? It has to do with unit, low unit labor costs, number one. Number two, it has to do with what you said earlier, taxation policy. Right? Vietnam offers security of rents and profits to its uh, investors. So forget Vietnam. Vietnam is way ahead. 97% literacy. India, right? India is attracting uh, global investments from the number one company in the world, no less, right? Thailand, Brazil, these are all examples of similar low income, middle income, you know, those kinds of countries. We're not comparing Pakistan with France or you know, Great Britain, for example, we're comparing it with what similar countries have done in the last 20, 30 years. The idea has been very simple, whether we like it or not. There's a whole, I have a critique of and a criticism of, you know, global value chains in Bangladesh, et cetera, and the exploitation of workers there. But in the Pakistani case, you know, this economist, Joan Robinson famously remarked that the only thing worse than being exploited by capital is not to be exploited by capital, i.e. being unemployed. Right? So in the Pakistani case, capital does not want to produce a profit. Capital does not want to exploit the workers by giving them a job in the first place. So how can Pakistani, I mean, this is my kind of, uh, you know, bone of contention with the Pakistani left as well, right? That, okay, so your struggle is about workers' rights and organizing them for higher wages and all the rest of it, right? Higher wages, the concept itself implies that workers have a job. Right? It is a function of productivity as well. Right. right. So it all boils down ultimately in the Pakistani case, and I may sound like an extreme revisionist here, there are possibilities of class coalitions between workers and capitalists. It's not like Pakistani capitalists are having a, you know, a ball out there. I mean, look at any Pakistani capitalist right now, right? Are they serious? Do you seriously think they're making a profit? Why is the Pakistani stock market not reflecting those those gains then. So Pakistan is not even an economy that promotes um, capitalist profits and investments. It's, it's not even doing that. It's designed for a very particular kind of profitability that emanates from controlling the value chain end to end. For example, the Fauji Fertilizer Index, the Fauji Fertilizer Company is Pakistan's entrepreneurial model par excellence control the value chain from start to finish, right? Control the input pricing, Ogra's gas, and control the consumer price. Pakistan's fertilizer sells at three times the value of the same bag of urea in India. 
And then we ask, why are Pakistani farmers unable to produce tomatoes at the same price as Indians? Well, I have news for you, their input price is higher. And generally speaking, when input prices are higher, output prices are higher, right? It's a simple law of economics. So no matter how we cut it, in the final analysis, Pakistan's political and economic crisis boils down to A, the inability of the state and the society to generate production, high value production, B, generate it on a sustainable basis, and C, generate it at a quality that is of use value to the rest of the world. Uh, very fair point. And uh, I mean, before Danish would come in, and actually I would want you to come in on a follow-up question that I have. And I'm actually, com I, I feel compelled to ask you this. Prior to 2017, and I do not want to sound that I'm favoring one, one party over the other, or one set of uh, you know, policymakers over the other, because I have critiques for all of them. But you specifically mentioned that prior to 2017, Pakistan was on a growth trajectory. But uh, my argument here would be that while growth is an indicator, as a parameter, it is not all. Because were, was there any structural transformation that happened between, let's say, 2011, 2012, 2013, and 2017? When Nawaz Sharif was ousted, that's one. You know, shift from low productivity to high productivity. Secondly, when any export-oriented sectors were they set up, did you see or witness a change where Pakistan was capitalizing on greater production of goods worth, you know, value-added goods worth export exportation or not? On the other hand, there's a, the, the argument that I have is when Mr. Sagdar, the current finance minister, he had the same the policies that he's named for, known for, where he pegs, he artificially, you know, puts up an arbitrarily fixed exchange rate against the US dollar. And it, while even a freely floating exchange, it is not the solution, it's not the key until you have those productive capacities to back, you know, freely floating exchange rate. And even whether you have the commodities to go only then it's going to be favorable. But, you know, pegging that, what it has done is that it made Pakistan into a transactional commodity. So the value of money, you know, it was, it artificially increased, you know, uh, it boiled up. So rather than producing goods, a lot of business maker in Pakistan, it was feasible for them to import goods from, let's say, China and sell them in Pakistan because imported goods were costing them less. So it is not that while there was growth happening, the growth was not being led by the production scale, upscale production or integration of Pakistani uh, you know, mid-tier, periphery, third-tier companies with global value chains. So the integration was not there. The structural transformation wasn't happening. The focus was still back then completely on real estate. Uh, Malik Riaz was still the tycoon. He still is. So, you know, growth itself, um, you know, and even the, the reallocation of resources, there was an increasing divide. We didn't see that happening. So, you know, I mean, Danish and Sharam both, do you think, um, does that does that was that good was that bad does that make any difference because you know, I, mean, I don't I don't yeah. these are these are fair points but l let me uh, give you one example why it was a relatively better period right given in in that particular yeah. context the major crisis at that time right was in addition to law and like uh, I wouldn't I, I, I don't like to say law and order situation <laughs> it was actually terrorist attacks yeah. every few days right remember 2012 and power outages right you cannot have any kind of economy forget about capitalism socialism anyism mm -hmm. without electricity these days right so that was the major 
underlying i would call it a structural problem right it's a story if you that's a major public good that you need or quasi public good for any sort of production and even consumption so they kind of address that issue right again in the case of pakistan there's a faith again a local colloquial mm-hmm. if you have to even build dasmarle ki koti it it takes like it's it's a huge logistical oh, yeah, right? yeah, given yeah. the kind of society we have the kind mm-hmm. of institution we have like but they did pull up i mean they did well in terms of building those power plants i mean i'm just simply saying just putting them out there and plug into national yeah, yeah. of course yeah. you can go into details like the yeah. the deals were not good and all of that but that they address that public good and second is the through cpac i i'm assuming that's what you're referring to yeah right. through cpac and also uh, some other uh, investments so that that sort of address that uh, energy crisis and and that's where i i earlier mentioned uh, said throughout pakistan history the spells of growth are followed by these external account crises because growth leads to uh, increase in consumption because uh, pakistani growth is consumption led right not investment led as sharam said which is key it's more consumption led growth higher consumption because the consumption is tied to imports in pakistan and therefore we end up with higher trade deficit and exports are kind of stagnated or increasing at very low rate and that leads to external account crises or you go to imf to fill that gap right so that has been the overall story now the question is how to address so if this is and this has been framed as the major issue right that this trade deficit is is the underlying issue in pakistan's macro economy so because you run out of dollars yeah the question is how can you address trade deficit one uh, obvious answer is cut your imports right that has been the historically the solution but we know in today's global globally integrated economy what sharam said global value chains you your exports depend on imports right these are yeah. the inputs or yeah. the intermediate goods so if you uh, impose high tariffs or quotas that will definitely limit your exports so that is not a viable solution for a long term you can have short spells right for again pakistan has short spells of restricting imports but that cannot be a strategy for long term so the other is to expand your exports right and that has and that's where we are referring to that institutional structure that is the underlying problem because in any capitalist economy businesses would like to make profits right that's what they are there for right now they'll invest in those avenues which leads to best returns with low risks right? now i'm sure among uh, to talk to anyone in pakistan land has been the easiest way to make some sort of money right or even you build houses and sell those right now for those businesses i have nothing against malik riyas for pursuing capital like to make money within that capitalist system he just knows that system really well it's the state policies that have incentivized allocation of productive resources from productive to unproductive sectors of the economy such as the real estate and that is the key issue now it hasn't been framed like this in mainstream now it is coming in we have been i think we 
Ayan Sharam have been writing about this for a <laughs> while, but now it has become a mainstream issue. I hear even Mifta Ismail often talks no. in, in this terms, which is a good thing, it's a positive thing. The, but still in the mainstream, economic crisis is framed in the accounting terms, right? Just as you said, fiscal deficit or taxation. All of these questions are tied to the productive capacity of the economy. So the key, the solution to address taxation problem, solution to address fiscal crises is to expand the productive base of the economy. And in the short run, you can run fiscal deficit, right? As long as it is in the in the if you are the sovereign issuer of that currency, right? So in so there is no economic constraint or fiscal constraint to the government of Pakistan to build public schools in yeah. interior sin or in Ravlakot AJK or in Hunza Gilgit Baltistan. They can build those schools, they can hire local residents and as and they can pay them in rupees, right? The, the problem would be, right? The problem would be, well, that would lead to higher consumption and imports. So Again, so the, to close this loop, right, in order to avoid this crisis, you have to expand your productive base of the economy. And in order to do so, you have to re-incentivize capital to come to um, sectors which add to exports. And in order to do so, that's the necessary condition, not sufficient, is political stability, right? Yeah. That's the necessary condition. Like, and, and that's the necessary, and throughout Pakistan history, it the political stability has been undermined by the intra-elite fights or rifts, right? And as Sharam said, we have been framing those intra-elite fights in terms of institutions like military versus civilian actors or judiciary, but it might be even the rifts between those institutions have probably led to a lot of instability. If you notice every October or November, whenever the new army chief has to be appointed, there's instability, right? So there's so so that these issue needs to be addressed. In order to do so, there has to be a minimum consensus among all economic actors, and that's where there was a hope in 2008, right? The Charter of Democracy was signed between two major political actors. Again, let me add, despite all their flaws, right? We are not. Well, really fond of their economic policies or their political policies on lots of issues such as inequality, gender, religious freedom, and so forth. But yet there was a consensus, right? And that consensus has been undermined through a concerted effort by state institutions through a new political actor, PTI. And now we are, that's all, almost we are at the ultimate conclusion of that uh, Art orchestrated uh, move by the establishment to disrupt that consensus. And that has undermined economic development in Pakistan. At least we lost that decade. Oh yeah, very well framed and actually very well summarized. And if I may add, I think enhancing product productive capacity also hinges on investment, which hinges on investment climate. And I think it's high time where we start looking at those fundamentals because I mean, just um, a, a week ago, I'm sure you must have read that too. There was this fourth convention of foreign ministers between Pakistan and China. And the Chinese foreign minister, he said that Pakistan needs political stability and needs to rectify these parties, need to sit amongst themselves, reconcile if Pakistan wants to be, you know, a recipient, a good host 
of investments coming in. And we're not just talking about foreign investments, even domestic investments, public, whether private, for them to, you know, to, to have optimal results before even realization of the results for the investments to come in, just the basic info investments, you need a, you know, a politically stable environment, which sadly has been disrupted. And uh, my message, I think, whoever I speak with, even people on the ground, is that there is no one messiah. So we have to get rid of this uh, false sense of hope that one, any one particular person can change or salvage Pakistan. And there are faults with everyone. I mean, PTI, I, I, I wrote a paper and I listed an entire bunch of economic mismanagement actions that they undertook. I mean, they had five finance ministers and barring one, none of them was an economist to begin with. So, you know, they, they had the plan. They, they never had a plan to begin with, let alone having a wrong plan. And similarly, P, uh, people's PPP and PMLN, similar issues uh, so i yeah i guess we, we we there is a consensus that there are a lot of grays and all these stakeholders these key stakeholders they need to politically reconcile chart out a long term plan and kind of stick to that plan because enhancing productivity is the only solution in the long term uh, so um, anything any final remarks that you that yeah, you would maybe add to, yeah i just wanted to say that you know um, so in, in, in institutional economics, uh, we distinguish between de jure and de facto. Yeah, de facto, yeah. This is, this is very critical, right? And yeah. as long as there is a discrepancy between de jure and de facto power, what happens in practice versus what is written in the law, mm -hmm. right? As long as there is that discrepancy, no political settlement can take place in such a, in, in such an economy, right? Now, it, 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 it's, it's fascinating, right? I mean... Uh, and it's, a, it's a huge discrepancy. I just want to say that's a huge one. And moreover, I mean, as, as as someone who's been you know studying this as well as you know thinking about it for basically my whole adult life, um, this link between democracy and development, right? If the if if any, right? I mean, I've been coming to the kind of the sober kind of conclusion that you know the link, if any, is very mild. What the 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 what I think what. In the, in the final analysis matters is the political settlement itself. For example, right? Is there clarity on the rules of the game? In Saudi Arabia, there is no democracy. It's a completely totalitarian state, but there is complete clarity on the rules of the game, right? MBS's power is completely unchallenged. In China, there is no democracy, but it's crystal clear who's gonna be in power. The political rules of the game are set. No one is going to challenge them, right? In our case, unfortunately, uh, we 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 we've been unable to you know come up with any kind of uh, reasonable answer to that particular question. What is what exactly are the rules of the game? Which also, by the way, ties in with what Danish earlier said, namely that you know this idea that Benazir Bhutto came up with. You know she wrote this book called Reconciliation right before she died. And the idea was, and its its practical outcome was the Charter of Democracy in 08. And the idea was, it was a very good idea. The idea was that well. Given Pakistan's turbulent uh, political past with, you know, coups and all the rest of it, it would make sense for all the civilians to agree on a minimum framework, namely that we'll, you know, fight this political battle amongst ourselves within the legal and constitutional framework, and none of us will ally with the third force, as it's, you know, euphemistically called in Pakistan, right? 
who violated that agreement? That's the key question. Who violated that agreement? And if you really start to ask that particular question, no one violated that agreement. One person who was never a part of it and one particular party that was never a part of the 08 agreement, you know, never signed the Charter of Democracy, ended up aligning with, you know, the same powers that be for one decade, no less, you know, an entire generation of pro-establishment, you know, individuals has grown up believing that this person, this individual, you know, has some, some kind of saintly powers, you know. So that is not a coincidence. That's a result of the political catastrophe that's upon us. It's a cause as well as an effect. And now that is unraveling right in front of us. And there's this, I mean, despite what strong beliefs anyone may have, and they have the right to their own opinions and viewpoints, on the economic front, which is an economic reality that the people are living through, they're realizing, and it's only going to get worse. There is no, I mean, one particular party or individual, not naming name, naming names, but you know, there, there is definitely no solution. Definitely not without political reconciliation. And going back, especially when you want to uh, completely why against uh, a, a, a complete institution and establishment which has been reigning the country for the last 75 odd years, uh, yeah, facilitating the interests over the other. So I guess this turned out to be a very heavy discussion, much more than what I had uh, anticipated it would be. I thought we'll just brush upon key basic issues, chote baad on the economy. Put it upon yourself, man. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 but fair point. I think it was very crucial and important to discuss that considering what is happening in Pakistan at the moment, because you absolutely cannot ignore that. You cannot circumvent, you know, the, 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 the real politic of the situation. It calls for... Uh, you know, diverging into not just, you know, the economic issues, of course, they're just, a, I guess, a function. And the, the great independent variable is the, the, yeah, the, the political crisis and the political actors who are in play. Including on, on, a light, on a lighter note, yeah. if you may allow to say yeah. this. I, I think we should enough. finish on a lighter it, note. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> Please it do. Come to, it may come to bite me sometime in future, you know, all this digital media. You know, there's one solution I propose, right? And that is Imran Khan ko president banade, Shabazz Sharif wazir azam or Bilawal of foreign minister. Why? Because Imran Khan likes to deliver speeches, right? He wants to be a global leader. Go to UN. <laughs> Pakistan is nothing for him, right? He he is he thinks he's a global leader, right? So as a president, you know, it's a it's a symbolic ceremonial position. So yeah, let him go tour the world, give speeches, yeah. talk about Islamophobia. Shabazz yeah. Sharif likes to claim to be a doer, right? A chief yeah. executive who wants to get things done. Say, okay, let him try. Give him shot, let's do. And again, Bilawal is an emerging. So there's a here's a consensus. Uh, Tanish is giving ideas to Asim Munir right now. Huh? <laughs> yeah. I, I was just going to say that. I guess, again, this... for a, new, a new selection. Huh? <laughs> yeah. It's like it's all going to be de jure, you know. The de facto, we all know what we all know what the de facto is. But I, I think a great solution, any solution which brings all of them together, I think I'd be more than happy to take it. And that is, I think, the one key solution is that get sit down on the table. The future of the country, you cannot uh, eliminate whatever proportion of a certain population is is behind. You know, whether you consider them crooks, whether you consider one in, incompetent, whatsoever, as long as 
there's certain mandate mandate should be respected that is the way to go beyond democracy and i think even when this fight against the establishment uh the people who are fighting for it and who are very vocal on twitter they need to realize that going up against one person is not the solution you know it if it's if you you if you want to make a democracy versus a military rule uh, i guess then then it makes sense but for democracy then you need to respect all all parties all across the board you can't be having protests in london outside somebody's houses i mean it's it's just uh, I, i mean beyond chaotic what is happening everywhere but uh, on that note thank you so much it was a great great discussion and uh, great learning lessons for me as well and i'm sure for a lot of others so thank you so much both of you thank you